Okay, I think we're we're in and uh, fantastic. Hey, Nicole, how's it going? Hey, David, really good. How about yourself? Oh, fantastic! Uh, it's really great to great, really great to see you again. I, I saw you the other day at uh, SVVR, the Silicon Valley Virtual Reality Meetup. So that was great to catch up. Um, but you know, now that we're kind of doing this kind of official recording, you know, catch fill me in on all the cool stuff that you've been working on recently. Oh, great. Well, I've been, uh, you know, I've been, as you know, like in the game industry for 30 years. And uh, right now I'm focused a lot on uh, XR. So I'm doing a game called Follow the White Rabbit. And it's a adventure mystery that you play in your real world with your real friends. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. I've got it running on um, iOS mobile and it looks you know, a little bit like this, this thing over here. And we've got, uh, yeah, it's a game about a magician who's one, whose magic one day suddenly works. He's been a charlatan all his life. And then, boom, the rabbit really disappears uh, wearing a pri priceless diamond bracelet. And so now everyone wants to follow the white rabbit. Uh, wow, but but probably so cool. more, yeah, but probably so what I'm most excited about now is I was there at Apple Park for the uh, Apple Vision Pro launch. And that was amazing. That was amazing to be on site for that. You, you were one of the fortunate few that got a personal invite to come to the Apple campus, which was phenomenal. You guys did like a, a showing. Um, it, they made it really much like a spectacle. I heard like uh, they even built an Apple store like on campus to show off the headset. Just tell me about your day of that experience. Like uh, I'm jealous. G give me all the details. Oh, great. Well, I've been going, I've been an Apple developer, you know, since, you know, 2007 and uh, the, it was, and I've been to lots of WWDCs, but this one was really, I mean, the tension was so thick. You could, you know, cut it with a knife. It was like, would they announce it? Would they announce it? So I was, you know, hanging out with uh, Sarah Hill and my friend, uh, uh, Terry Schusler, and we were, you know, sitting together going, I don't know, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Because we're all big, you know, XR, you know, XR fans. And uh, when they said one more thing, you know, it was just like Muppet level excitement, just like, yay, you know, everybody's arms in the air. It was, it was just, it was really, it was really, really awesome. We got a chance, we got a chance to, there was a viewing so we could actually see the device. Uh, I didn't actually get to put it on, just the only people that got to put it on were really the, uh, the media folks, you know, the press folks. Uh, but if you read their uh, reviews, uh, it's or if you read their reviews, actually, if you just watch their videos, you can see like how excited they are about the headset. So it's really like off the charts. Um, it feels it definitely feels like a premium headset and kind of doing what Apple did in 2007. And, you know, in 2007, what happened is you had phones with email and web browsers and cameras, you know, things like and plastic keyboards. And Apple came out with this device that uh, just spun them all together and got rid of the keyboard. And people were like, you know, no, people aren't going to play games on that. It's too small. People are like, it was $600. And the average price for a cell phone at the time was like 98. So it was like <laughs> six times the price. Uh, and so what? it's just very fun to see for us now uh, that, that, you know, with that, uh, with the, with the launch, it's just really interesting to see you know, all of the, you know, all of the, all of the, neg all of the negatives, all of the concerns. You are very similar to what we heard in two thousand seven, you know, with the iPhone launch. So for me, I read that as being like we're in pretty good shape to do a pretty spectacular uh, launch when it actually when the hardware actually hits the shelves. That's fantastic. You brought up the analogy of you know, the cost of an iPhone when they first came out was six times more than a regular cell phone. 
but that's also because the innovation that they put in the tech, obviously, you know, from, you know, they, they revolutionized or changed the dynamic of even touch, touch screens. Now that's, that's a good point that this headset now is, is priced a lot higher than any existing VR headset. Tell me uh, what, what are your thoughts just on the general hardware itself? Oh yeah. Well, the, the, the Vision Pro is really the same price. It's between a Magic Leap and a HoloLens. So it's priced very similar to other, you know, high-end AR devices, uh, but it's much less than the Vario and some of the really, really premium, you know, uh, device, devices, uh, VR devices. So my thought on, on that is that the, you know, I'm really amazed with the hardware, like what we're, you know, what we're seeing. And that the, I think with the Apple Vision Pro, you have a combination of 4K per eye. So the high resolution displays, the lack of controllers, you're just going to be using your eyes, you know, and your fingers, and then a really phenomenal OS to make a very seamless, very, very seamless experience that's going to have that app to app magic that we saw in the original uh, iPhone launch back in 2007. So I think Apple's now, in a really good place to uh, launch spatial computing as a new platform. You mentioned a couple of things. I, mm-hmm. I totally agree. I think um, the idea of not showing controllers, because I think that also falls in line with um, Apple's cultural design choices of, of being very human first, human interface guidelines, human mm-hmm. interaction guidelines, um, going back to how humans interact with technology. And I thought that was really cool. Um, you're a UX expert. Like, Nicole, I don't know if you remember, but when I was working at Ubisoft, and I think this is close to a decade ago, <laughs> you know, you came and spoke and consulting for Ubisoft, uh, especially for the third-party publishing group that I was working in. You know, kind of paint a picture of your journey because you have a very unique story coming from game development, working on all the different platforms and now going into VR. You know, I'd just love to have uh, more insight on your origin story. Great. Wow. Well, I have been running Zeo Design for 30 years. And uh, among other things, I was the first, I designed the first iPhone game in 2007. And I also, you know, it created, we needed to know like a little bit more about what was going on with games. I was doing a lot of player testing and I wanted games that were more emotional, like a movie. How could we do that? And so I was the first person to measure emotion on people's faces while they played games. And that, you know, Four Keys to Fun, which is, you know, back on the back wall there, it's used by millions of developers, you know, around, around the world. Uh, everything from, you know, we, it's baked into the AI for The Sims. It's, you know, used by, you know, everything from like Candy Crush to Assassin's Creed to, you know, to Dragon Age. Uh, all about how to like create new emotions. And it's from the interaction design. You know, emotions actually come from the interaction design. So essentially it's giving, uh, I, I really like to design interaction to create emotion the way an artist might design emotion using paint or an actor might use create emotion by using their voice. Uh, yeah. So it's been a, yeah, it's been a long, long journey. Yeah. Cause we've worked, as you said, like everything from, you know, like from the Sims, we did some work on, uh, well, we've worked on, you know, three of the missed games and uh, the matrix and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of games in between for sure. Yeah, I think uh, we, we crossed some paths uh, when I was also working with Cyan Worlds, uh, working yeah. on some missed projects. Um, coming from game development, you know how hard it is to make a game. Like for mm-hmm. developers and indie developers like yourself, like there's a lot of sweat and tears. And I think you hit upon a good 
aspect of actual game design, which is really about drawing emotion. You actually want the player to have some type of emotion, and then you actually have the mechanics like the camera, controls, the character, the three Cs, kind of reinforce to try to get that player in that emotional state, whether it's fear, whether it's aggression. Tell me about your philosophy regarding design and designing for XR versus games. What's different? I know it's a kind of a that's a that's a big question, but you know, just give me a swag on that. Awesome. Well, let me, let me talk about games first. Uh, with you know, you know, in games, you know, without without emotion, there is no game. You know, if a, if the interaction with the controls, if that micro loop, you know, you know, meta loop, if the core loop, if those aren't generating emotions, people will put it down. And so that's the basic philosophy of looking at how those emotions generate and people play games for four reasons. You know, they play for novelty, they play for challenge, they play for friendship and they play for meaning. XR is the same thing. So if you go up onto my blog on, on Medium, I have a whole, a whole post on the four keys to fun and XR experiences and breaking down like why some of the mega hit popular XR experiences are so popular, and a lot of it has become, people come back again and again, a lot of it is because they're generating emotions in these, you know, kind of four key ways. And, uh, and, oh, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, well, the one thing that's really cool about emotion in XR is that as a platform, as a new platform, it is really good at generating emotions that other platforms can't. Just like there are some emotions that are better in a movie than in a book, uh, there are some there are some emotions that are just human emotions that are really amazing that you can only experience you know in headset. And I, and I like to talk talk about this quote a lot, but presence mm -hmm. is the presence uh, is the absence of uh, presence is the absence of absence. <laughs> so <laughs> I think what you're trying to drive there is XR. You know those emotional states you actually feel present in those games versus maybe like a two D screen. You're you're probably not as immersed, even though a lot of two games are super immersive. I'm a, I'm a hardcore gamer, but mm -hmm. the sense of presence, because you have those, you know, six degrees of freedom, looking, being able to look at the, the world, foveated rendering with some of the headsets. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really what you're talking about, right? Well, you know, I would take it one step further. I think presence is just the table stakes. You have to feel like you've been there. You've been there. Now you can feel present in a, in a text-based mud, just to be clear. Because those words are the, the letters that you're seeing on screen create words in your head and you're building those castles in the sky, you know, in your in your head. But to feel presence, to feel really, you know, present there uh, is the visual ability and the audio and the haptic, you know, because haptics are a big part of this, too. And especially like high resolution haptics that we see, like in the PS5 controller. Those things, the audio and the visual and the haptics come together to create that world. But that world is going to be, you know, five minutes to look around or two minutes or 30 seconds looking around. And then they're just going to leave. It's more, you can't just transport them to the Giza Plaza to view the pyramids and the Sphinx. You have to have like an adventure or that happens there, you know, gameplay that happens there or an educational experience or a story that happens there in order for people to, uh, uh, stay for a while, interact with the world, because if you can interact with the world, that will also increase your sense of immersion. And then uh, if it creates emotions that you enjoy, even if they were like the frustration, like, oh, I hate this game, but then you succeed. Oh, yeah, I love this game. Uh, you know, all of those things uh, that that's what those strong emotions are what's going to you know, get you to come back. 
I totally agree. I think it's that that hook of actually being transported, if you will, to kind of feel that type of experience again. Yeah, to- totally makes sense. A really good example of that is uh, in the in the Vision Pro launch. You know, we have it was sort of like the uh, for those veterans in the you know XR industry, it was kind of like the the greatest hits of VR. And when you see the, the um, it's not a T-Rex, but you see the dinosaur like come out of the wall, right? Uh, you were reminded of like, oh yeah, I remember the very first Oculus demo that I tried. Well, it was, I, I tried earlier ones, but you know, where the, where the T-Rex comes around the hall in the museum. But if you break down those two moments and do a side by side, you can see like what's coming next out of, out of Apple in terms of uh, other things that make it more of a complete, kind of a complete experience. Isn't is a little bit more than just the shock value of like, okay, there's a dinosaur and me in the same room. You are getting uh, a, so the, just the hints of how uh, AR storytellers are going to take the Vision Pro to that to that next level. I love that. Um, you you, you, t- you touched on a couple of good points that I really want to delve deep it down into. I think first of all, Apple just did a great job of doing what Apple does best. What are the biggest problems for mass adoption? And let's fix those. So the dinosaur is a great example because you remember the HoloLens demo, demo with the, the space spider coming out of the wall. Look, on video, I couldn't wait to try on the HoloLens. But at the same time, when you did try it and the, the, the field of view was cut off just because, you know, the, the quality yeah. of where we were with it, with the headset was postage size stamp. So you would see a portion of the image and rest of it would be masked off. So it kind of took you out of that immersion. Mm-hmm. And with what Apple had done was really focused on the quality of pass through and with color pass through. And uh, the reports that I've been hearing is that it's so clear that when you wear the headset, it kind of feels like you're just wearing a pair of goggles and seeing the real world outside. Mm-hmm. They just did a great job of that. They also did a great job of being able to use the cameras to see outside of the headset to also kind of fake foveated, foveated rendering, like how we see <laughs> kind of a little bit blurry to the side. They even right, added right. that into the experience. And also, obviously, the field of view of being able to have like real vision um, really made it a point. And I think that opens up so many possibilities for developers. As a designer, what do you think are, are some like low-hanging fruits that developers can take advantage of with that? Well, with that, I mean, it, it reminded me, the specs reminded me of my experience in Pimax, like in 2019 CES or 2020 CES before the world shut down. Pimax is this huge. Yeah, it was a huge uh, deal, huge, but there was like yeah. four or 8K per eye. And so I walked up to a poster, a wanted poster in this experience, and I could read all the text super crisply. And I thought, wow, I could actually, you know, not only play this game, I could actually code here because I could read. I mean, I could actually read. You know, it looked like um, it looked like high resolution, you know, laser print. You know, very, very fine. Um, and so I'm thinking that that will be if if it is that if it is really you know 4K per eye, then you're going to have uh, some really amazing experiences that are possible on on headset. Not that we're going to put a lot of reading in in you know in these things. But it's at that resolution where it does really feel it does really feel real, and then it gives you a lot more bandwidth to make things uh, you know, make things more you know more you know compelling and nuanced because it's not super blocky and pixelated. Yeah, I, you know this is kind of off tangent, but what mm-hmm. you had said just kind of reminded me of of reading in your dreams. Like one way to f- realize okay. if you're in a dream or not is mm-hmm. read something, and if you can't do it, uh, then 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 you're probably dreaming, right? And yeah, I think that, that's, I told uh, myself that, and then the next night I started reading in my dreams. So now the test is okay. I have to read it 
uh, twice and has to say the same thing. <laughs> you're kidding me. You tried it and then you're trying to read and you were able to master it. So yeah, now I now can read in my dreams and then I can that actually, is awesome. I, you know, well, Whoa. yeah, maybe, but I think my brain should be sleeping, not coding. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I think Wait, there's uh, an extra space behind the semicolon, like, <laughs> that's right <laughs> well speaking of high resolution i think yeah. you know one thing that might be interesting is you know this whole pipeline of ipad and iphone games that are now going to be in 2.5d it's not just mm -hmm. your 2d touchscreen but now it's going to be in this not necessarily 3d but a, but a you know 2.5 where it has some depth you know that we already talked about the resolution um, what do you think of that idea of, of what Apple had showcased? Like, hey, look at this whole ecosystem. And now you're going to all these developers who've made games like yourself can reimagine it for the Vision Pro. What are your thoughts between 2D and 2.5D? I think it's a brilliant strategy on Apple's part. Again, I don't work for Apple, but uh, from what I'm reading the tea leaves, it's just a brilliant strategy because they've created this amazing on-ramp for a large number of developers. So Apple has about 12 million developers on their iOS platforms and they're making like Swift UI and all kinds of really easy, you know, easy on-ramps for, for developer, their existing developers. And, you know, just add one feature, they're saying, just add one spatial, make one window spatial. What's that one key thing that you could make spatial? And then that developer mm. will make that one key thing and then they're going to do it really well, which is a very Apple design principle, right? Just do it really, really well have a good experience and then their next step will probably more, be even more spatial. So you're going to have these, not 12 million, but you're going to have a lot of, you know, multiple, possibly multiple millions of people, you know, upgrading their apps for spatial uh, slightly. And then that next generation is going to be there. You've got then a second audience is the traditional XR developers, you know, the ones that are already, you know, making XR experiences. And they're often like in limbo with a lot of the platforms. It's like, okay, I've been, you know, I've been in, you know, I've been in the, uh, I've been in the dungeon for about four years now or three years now, and I'm not never going to get into that store, you know, cause only so many, you know, the supply is very constrained in a lot of these, uh, XR stores. And mm -hmm. then looking over at Apple and it's like, Apple, wow, an app store. I know, I mean, it'll be approval process, but I'm probably going to be able to get into that. So That's it's going right. to really be interesting to everybody, all the XR developers that are, you know, that are not able to get on into the main store on other headsets. They're going to be like, whoosh, let's go to, let's go to Apple. Uh, so I think that was a really, really, you know, kind of a brilliant strategy on, on Apple's part. 100%. I think um, the whole onboarding of, of this existing developer base, you, you, why, why wouldn't you, why would you not uh, really pay attention to them? Yeah, and um, the, and the, the initial is... developers, like they need just like this baby stuff because they need to imagine what Spatial would do and they need to execute it well. So that there's good content and they have a good experience and they try again. Uh, Apple's pretty confident that, you know, XR developers, probably XR developers can figure something out. So although lots of grousing about, oh, it's too 2D, it's not really VR, it's not really AR. It's like, I really think, it, you know, I, I, you know, I obviously just reading tea leaves, I imagine it's intentional to bring that army of OS, iOS developers that they already have. And if they do that, they're going to have, you know, not only just like, you know, a high, high portion of the, their current app stores, you know, ready, you can experience in headset, but they're going to have also a number of apps that have been optimized for, you know, for uh, spatial, for spatial computing on the headset. That, that's a hundred percent. I totally agree with that. I think the onboarding aspect, Apple follows through on that, just like we had talked about, um, just being able to have like human moments of input, like hand tracking 
but also eye tracking, which we didn't discuss. Oh, yeah. you know, as I'm you know, everyone's excited. been talking about how great it is. Like your mm -hmm. user experience expert, tell me about um, your your thoughts on their eye tracking, what that means for existing, you know, iOS devs or even devs new to XR. What what's your what's your thesis on eye tracking and how that can help the experience for game developers or any developer today thinking about developing for XR or the Apple Vision Pro? Yeah, I think it's XR's vision. I mean, I think it's XR's iPhone moment, seriously. I really do, because the uh, user experience that they have provided, that they've showcased, the hardware that they are, you know, are launching has that simplicity that we got in the original iPhone. It threw out so many, it throws out so many com complexities of current HMD, current VR headsets and AR headsets too, actually that uh, that it makes it very so much more accessible for people who've never tried and never experienced XR. So the idea that you just use your hands, you know, and you know, Apple's pretty famous for making a one button mouse, right? Uh, so just using your hands and your eyes, you know, to interact is great. We may, you know, it does also support, you know, a keyboard and a touchpad, you know, the other things I am at and a game controller. So it does have these other other things. And I imagine in productivity, we actually are going to get an, an Apple Vision Pro pencil. I bet you we're going to have the, uh, I bet you we're going to have the Apple Pencil VR Pro edition because you're going to be wanting to draw in space. I think you'll want that precision. But with mm -hmm. eye tracking, what's amazing is that, and I've worked actually on several eye tracking OSs, you know, one that actually Google bought, uh, where you, where the whole operating system runs just on your eyes. And you, in that case, not even your hands. So it was, it was hands free, just your eyes, and you could run. You know, you could run. You could run the whole thing. So I'm very bullish on it. And what the the nice, the really interesting, if you watch the video really closely, as I have, the the really interesting things for me as a designer are the way in which those highlights happen. Because if you look at a round button, you'll see that 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 it isn't just the whole button that's selected, but they have this little this little sub selection, almost like a shining a flashlight across the the surface of that icon it pops in 3d and all that good stuff but it also has that and that flashlight effect is going to do wonders for eye strain i mean it's really going to help make it feel so much more comfortable uh, for people because the not only are the saccades which are the motions of the eyes the fastest motion in the human body but they're also some of the smallest and so that extra layer of uh user feedback for eye tracking, I think is really is really going to take it out of the park. The other thing that they, you know, no pun intended on Apple Park, but um, <laughs> uh, the other thing they're doing on the headset is they have the what looks what appears to be downward facing cameras, so that you get much better, uh, much better. You can put the hand in the lap type of thing to do your tapping. Uh, you don't have to hold it out here, you know, to you know, to, so your cameras can see it. You can just relax your arm. And, you know, being able to just push a button, you know, it's like a remote control. Once you know what the button is, you can just, you know, you can fast forward or you can, you know, you can do that. So that's going to be very, you know, very great for, uh, for UI. That said, if you want to do a game and you want to, uh, I, I think as anyone who's really done like AR games before uh, and eye tracking AR games, uh, you can't just look at the zombie and shoot, right? And look at the zombie headshot, headshot. That's just not fun. So some of the genres of games, we're going to have to rethink a little bit about, you know, adding an intermediary layer. You know, you need, okay, now we need a gun, a reticle, and a something else to make that fun leap. But as for basic UI, I think they've really, they've really demonstrated a great, great base level. It's not, they have not demoed a complete OS though. 
So, you know, I've been, I mean, I was designing camera, um, you know, camera input, you know, uh, camera UI since before they connect, before the Sony iToy uh, for a company called ePlanet. And, uh, you know, it's, so I know like a lot about what, what a full OS would have to be in order to map it and how to map it to the eyes. Uh, so we haven't seen that part. So that's going to be really interesting, but it is Apple and they really are experts in UI and UX. So, you know, that could be, um, you know, that, that'll be really interesting, interesting, interesting to see. For the UX people in the audience, this is the, the thing that, this is the most common problem that one has to solve. There are many ways of solving it. But with an eye tracking UI, you have, uh, essentially with a mouse, you have two, you know, you have, you have a, you have a specific cursor, right? And you have eyes. So you actually have two sort of selection icon uh, methods. For uh, eye tracking UX, you actually put them those together. You're mapping them right. The cursor is your eyes. And so the OS has to separate out, is this person just looking at the painting of Mona Lisa? Or is the person like intending to grab it and steal it right at that moment? And so one is an action and one is just a gaze. So the gaze and action, uh, you know, you need to separate that. You separate the user experience on those two things. Uh, and there's some, some tricks that, that have to be going. And then, so that's, again, that's why uh, I, I think there's additional UI that we're going to need. And Apple may have it and they just haven't shown it to us yet. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if um, Apple has thought all of that stuff out, but I, my hypothesis is that, hey, um, hand tracking is tough. There's things with occlusion, you know, different shades of color oh, of yeah, skin. Yeah, yeah. This whole thing, um, like, you know, one of our meetings was all about once <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Was like, <laughs> that, you know, that looks Can the you... same. No, you know, no, but it's not right. You know, that's right. And, you know, I experienced this like working at companies like Leap Motion, where we had just these two monochromatic cameras and we did it all in software to understand the hand pose. But the problem that we had, especially when working with game developers, was exactly what you had said, was mm -hmm, the intention right, yeah. for the player to look at that rock or to pick it up to then throw it. But mm -hmm. with Apple, what they did is let's make sure we have a double input or double confirmation. You look at something, mm -hmm. and if you're reaching for something at the same time, we know there's an object, we could probably correlate that you're trying to grab it and, you know, that there's that double input that you are closing your fist to be able to then grab that rock. But you and could I think also that be also looking the at the rock and then scratch your nose and oops, you just picked it up. Right. You know? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's going to be interesting. So yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, does your hand have to be really far away? Is it tracking like the distance? Yeah. I think all but, of those but things. That's, I mean, but that's the fun. That's what makes me excited. You know, I was, I was talking to, um, you know, a friend of mine at SVVR the other night and it was like, I just, I feel as excited as, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel as excited as I was as a new iPhone owner in 20, 2007. And I have not felt that way again because there's so much blue ocean and like, how are we going to do like, you know, I had to, you know, I was sitting there thinking like, well, how could I play a game on this? That wasn't like just, you know, tap on the screen type of thing. Like I could, I could tap a mouse, I could tap on the screen. That's not going to be a fun game. Like, and you know, what we did was we rotated the, uh, you know, we rotated the phone in our game. I worked, did it with Joe Hewitt and Joe measured the width of the Safari browser. So it was a JavaScript game. And so it was like, you know, so we knew it was portrait or landscape. And so we matched blocks, you know, and that was like, oh, we're going to actually like, you know, you're going to have games where you actually have to move the phone to play. Who knew? Mm. And we don't know what's going to happen next. And just like in the iPhone, you know, when a whole bunch of games got ported over and there was a transparent D-pad, you know, on the screen, and that was like not very satisfying. 
we're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of game, but the, the games, you know, the, but other games, you know, were, were more excited because it was a new control. We're going to do the same thing for the Vision Pro. And I remember, if you remember Angry Birds, that was like one of the games that really took off on the iPhone and really, you know, really, and all you had to do is just, you were just swiping the phone to, you know, to play. And everybody knew, everybody knew how to swipe on a phone because you had to, at the time, you had to swipe to unlock, right? So they took the gesture you already knew and you just, you know, rotate a little bit and you, so you would like slingshot your little bird or whatever onto the thing, onto, you know, onto a pile of pigs. Uh, and that was, you know, and who know, who knew, you know, it was just, a, it was like, yeah, it's like a carnival. Basically it was just like a basic, you know, carnival game of, you know, slingshot, you know, slingshotting things. And that, that drove, you know, million, billions of valuation <laughs> just from, exactly. Yeah. Just from totally yeah. right. So we're going to have a lot, we're going to have a lot of that, a lot of experimentation, which would be great. What are some predictions, Nicole, uh, from a UX standpoint that are going to be probably interesting, you know, revelations in the next, uh, next year and a half after they come out with their dev kit and people get their hands on them? Well, I think that the, uh, one of the, pro one of the really interesting things that you're going to solve is like you, if you, again, like putting 2D UI and then giving a little bit of a pop is a great baby step into spatial computing. I think that's a great way for people to figure it out. And then as they do that and then rethink their app, they're going to learn a lot. But if we're all, if the whole experience is this windowed content, then uh, it's really not going to be spatial computing, right? Because, and it's also going to get really messy because at least in a desktop, you at least have gravity to kind of control the chaos, right? But imagine if you're on the ISIS space station, you know, and you could just put windows everywhere and, you know, you see, you see some humorous, you know, astronaut videos doing this, uh, you know, <laughs> it just gets, yeah, it, it, it becomes you know, dysfunctional after a little while. But more important, mm. I think, what I would say in terms of the next step of UX is that there's really no, I like, I like to say, and you can hear this in my TED talk, is that there are no wimps in the metaverse. And, you know, there's no wimps in cyberspace, no wimps in, in spatial computing. And by that, I mean, there are no windows, no icons, no mice, no pointers, and no solo play. So all of these things are getting rethink, rethought, right? So, you know, instead of point and click, you know, we have this, you know, tap and drag, right? And instead of, you know, windows of content, we've got worlds to explore. Instead of, uh, you know, like a cursor and a pointer, you have your avatar, your actual, you know, your actual body. Uh, and Apple had some great video of uh, 3D avatars uh, that were, you know, you know, just about over the Uncanny Valley, out of the Uncanny Valley. You know, you, you could tell they were getting there. Uh, you know, and so, and then social, which is really interesting. And I think that's actually another really good point about Apple, about the Vision Pro is that there's been a lot of talk about the contrast between the two, you know, two kind of two leading platforms, uh, you know, like Oculus and, and the Vision Pro. And on one hand, I think the, with the Vision Pro, what's fun is that the Vision Pro focuses on the people that are in your real world. And although we saw you know, pretty much one person in a headset just using it on their own, they, uh, there are a lot of things where people, like the real people in your world, are coming in, can come into your experience. You, know, you can still have your experience and interact with other people in the world, in your real world. You could also do the virtual, like online, like we're doing here, uh, with you know, more of a 3D avatar. And so there's that aspect of social design, where as on like a fully occluded VR headset, um, like with like with the Oculus, 
you are you have to choose to have no you know nothing in your in your room right and you have to you can't interact with other people you know except if you lift your headset up right as you know but online there's a ton of content for that you can experience on a, on an oculus that is highly social you know vr chat multiplayer games what's you know what the golf uh, mini golf's one of my favorite um uh, uh, mini golf is one of my favorite ones um, so there's a lot of social kind of social stuff, but we also have cartoon avatars, which aren't quite as satisfying as something that's a little bit more, um, photorealistic. Uh, so that's a, some really interesting things about what, where, where social, where social is going. Apple will need to have multiplayer experiences for sure. And, you know, our, our, our game is going to be multiplayer, uh, because the, so, there's so many, you know, the social interaction is so key for long-term, long-term engagement. You know, that's a great segue. I'd love to find out more about Follow the White Rabbit. I know you've been developing this as an independent developer for quite some time, but also the hardware, I don't, I think the hardware, what you're making is perfect for the Apple Vision Pro because you really do need that sense of really clear pass-through cameras to make you feel present. I guess the Quest Pro also offers that as well, but you know, that combination of eye tracking and some of the other features that we discussed, tell me more about your project and, you know, tell me how it might benefit uh, on the Apple Vision Pro? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we've been working on Follow White Rabbit. It came out of uh, the Gear VR, you know, game jam, I guess. The Gear VR mobile mobile VR jam, probably 2014, a long time oh, ago. Several years ago when several Samsung was, had their yeah, and it, but it slot in headset. Like a, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, it runs on a headset. It was kind of pre-Google Cardboard, but that kind of idea. There was more tracking on it, on the headset. And uh, it ran on an S Note 4 which is like a very low end headset. Uh, and we, you know, we, we did that and we've refined it. And so when we got rejected for financing, we said, okay, you know, I just like demoed it for everyone. So probably over 4,000 people got their first VR experience, you know, in, in, in this room here in Paris uh, on a headset, whether it was the Gear VR uh, or like this is the pre-release, this is actually the pre-release Vive Focus, which came out a long time before the, uh, before the Quest self-tracking inside out out camera um, headset and then you know the go and uh, I've put it on magic leap actually I've got a great experience where I turn your world into Aladdin's cave full of treasure but it's cursed and you know if you touch any of the treasure uh, you know the cave will collapse and you know if you die in AR you die in real life so we don't want that but if you can like navigate through your world through this forest you can uh, do finger spells to find the five pieces of lamp and then break the spell and then you can gather as much you know treasure as you want so I've just basically prototyped as each headset has come out. I've prototyped it, you know, and then applied for funding, you know, got, you know, rejected. And then, you know, then moved on to the next one, got moved on to the next, move on to the next one. And so now what we're focused on is doing mobile XR. And uh, the idea is that you can now just play with an Android or iPhone, you know, in your world, you know, in your real room. And I'm self-financing it at the moment. And, uh, you know, and then we can just launch to, you know, launch to the app store, you know, regardless of headset, but it'll be better in headset because I've designed that path to where you can do like crossplay. You can have it in headset and then crossplay with your device. So your friend can have your an iPhone or, and then you can have your headset, your Vision Pro, and then you can both play together. I think that's going to be part of the killer app formula for the Vision Pro because, the, uh, you know, the person playing will be like, okay, I can, we can still play. They can have fun. And they're like, oh, well, I want to do more of this. I really want that Vision Pro, <laughs> right? So I think that there will be some of these multiplayer games will be a big driver for sales. I think cross-platform, especially considering Apple's ecosystem, I've got an iPad, I've got a MacBook Pro, and uh, I've got mm -hmm. an iPhone. Like, 
you know, cross-platform play with someone in Apple Vision Pro, I think that's that's a, a must-have. I think yeah. what you had mentioned regarding uh, social, I think that's also very interesting too, especially for Apple, considering that some people consider Apple already as a social device because iMessage, you're already talking to your personal network versus publicly, right? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, with with Apple, they also have wearables like the iWatch. Now you can have biometric data. And how does that relate to gameplay? What what do you see some opportunities, especially with your game, with cross-platform play? And, mm. you know, if, if if you had your wish, what, what would, would that wish be as a developer that Apple would give you as a developer to incorporate cross-platform or, or different devices within the Apple ecosystem? Oh, yeah. I would really, really love, uh, you know, cross-platform AR kit. AR kit is, you know, being accessed on both devices, but I really would love to be able to have the same, you know, kind of have the same mesh and be able to hand hand off between be able to do have robust, you know, hand tracking at least the skeleton, uh, and then that mesh in the world for for AR kit. I would love to be able to have access to that, like in this this wish list item in the simulator, folks, so that I can actually, you know, we can actually start building it for Vision Pro now, uh, as opposed to you know waiting until you know waiting till launch and then and then start incorporating the the features. So. If anyone has a spare Vision Pro demo kit, you can send it my way. Be very eternally grateful. Um, <laughs> but Tim, yeah, you heard it here first. Sense. You know, we got to set up Nicole. Come on, let's get on it. You know, <laughs> well, I think it would yeah, be very cool. phenomenal because, like, in porting, I've told you my journey, right, from headset to headset to headset to headset. Uh, we've also been tracking our, uh, you know, our net promoter scores. We've actually been getting a lot of feedback. I have a survey after each after each demo. So we've gone from like a negative five, you know, uh, you know, NPS score uh, to where they didn't they kind of didn't like it. Um, I mean, they liked it. Some people liked it, but then some, a lot of people didn't to like all the way now. We're like we've gone from negative five to sixty nine, which is, you know, averages about, you know, um, averages, I think, like like 20, 20, 20 to 30. So we're really getting, really getting up there. Uh, so we're really, you know, I, you know, having just had that whole history, I know a lot about what, what works. The other reason that we're going to look at is really getting innovative and creative developers. Like don't just port like uh, a, uh, an existing genre into, you know, into XR, create XR native, uh, XR native play stuff into it. And that's what we've done with, with White Rabbit, because this new version actually does kind of like that Aladdin's cave, but even better is a mystery that's happening in your room. So it's like inviting your friends over for a mystery dinner and you can, you can play it, you can all play together and it's actually incorporating the features of your world, you know, into the gameplay. Uh, so that's going to be super exciting. The high res cameras, the eye tracking, the, uh, the you know various several features of the AR kit are going to be all required, but we can pull those all together and all those ingredients together and make this amazing player experience and a lot of really fun emotions for players. Yeah, I think um, their emulator what they showcased was was cool. It was just a little underwhelming for me because, like you had mentioned, you know, where's the where's the actual mesh that I can actually do AR versus these. Windows, which I think maybe they just weren't ready to show that off yet. Who knows? Um, but being able to access the AR mesh so developers can start, you know, prototyping things, getting access to the hand tracking, just so mm -hmm. uh, developers can also start prototyping things. What what would be the first things that you would like to explore if you did get access to those as a developer today? Yeah, well, I think the first thing we would do is well, we'd also have to get the Unity integration, so that's coming out next month to select, um, you know, to select developers. So then we can, because our game is built in Unity right now, so we're programming it in. 
but the, the kind of the first thing I would do is uh, the, well, looking at the, yeah, basically looking at like what are the, I've already been running lighting tests. So, you know, what are the, what are the lighting? What's, what's the lighting like? What is the, uh, what is the, what is the mesh? How stable it is? But then like with, uh, you know, how, how is it going to feel to have two people, you know, in AR at the same time? And, you know, can we point to the same, you know, can, can we point to the same object, right? And then be, you know, it all be synced up. And then the thing that the other wish list item I have is that there are, I do agree with the philosophy of having no access to video pixels on the privacy standpoint, because developers won't have that. Uh, but the, uh, it would be lovely to have complexity. I, we can do a mesh complexity calculation if we get the mesh, uh, which, which we should, we should be able to. Uh, but I would love to have visual complexity as well. And so even if it wasn't an actual, uh, actual pixel level like video, uh, you know, so that my game could see, at least if I could see like, you know, uh, you know, relative density, like a heat map of visual interest and that we already have mechanics for in the game that we could, that we could, that we could hook into. And so I think that would be really interesting. So there's a blank wall over here. There's, you know, kind of a complicated thing there. There's, you know, oh, you know, another, another blank wall there. And I'm going to do different things in the game based on what, you know, the rough complexity. I mean, ideally we'd That's have cool. like actual, ideally we'd have actual, um, you know, actual video pixels and, you know, being able to run, um, be able to run, you know, real-time AI uh, object identification, you know, and feed that into the game mechanic. Those are those are definitely roadmap wish list items, and I think that's just going to blow uh, blow people away. It's kind of like if you think about it with games and AR games, you have the Princess Leia hologram kind of game. They have the Star Wars chess is the next level up. It's Star Wars chess, so kind of tabletop game. And then you have the ones, the game that's coming after that, which is what we're doing, is it actually addresses the room and you actually play it in your real room where your whole room, your whole world becomes becomes the game. Yeah, the room scale VR. Like, tell me your thoughts as a UX expert, why room scale is so important? Because some people may not even know what that is and, mm -hmm. you know, what the importance is, but th that also adds a tremendous value to presence, especially for mixed reality or, or AR. Well, the idea behind you can do a, you know, seated, you could do seated VR, you could do, uh, you could do standing where I'm just standing in place and I can move around a little bit, but not, not too much, or you can actually wander all around. And if you're going to follow a white rabbit, you're going to wander all around, <laughs> you want to wander around all the, all the living room. So I think that's a, that's an important, that's an important plus, uh, for, for folks. And if you are in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and you're seated, you know, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem too bad, right, for seated or even just standing. But if you need to change hydro spanners, you're going to want to be able to walk out the cockpit and then, you know, talk to R2 or whatever and like, you know, <laughs> lift up the panels and, and change stuff. And for that, you're going to need, need room scale. And you're going to need some really fun meshing and texturing, real-time texturing, meshing in order for you to, you know, get to that back panel so that you don't trip over the couch. And the couch becomes some some weird fun you know fun part of the uh, of the Millennium Falcon on the inside. So that's the difference between like room scale and then uh, you know just like a seated you know kind of you know cockpit fighter kind of game. Thanks for walking me through uh, the Millennium Falcon. That that was really cool. Um, <laughs> speaking of you know I'm all a these features, fan in case you haven't guessed. <laughs> I can I can get it. I get it. That's super cool. Um, in terms of. Uh, 
the different audiences now, like RoomScale, like Meta has been, you know, being able to provide some of that data and, you know, they've now released, you know, pass through vision, their mm-hmm. Meta's uh, pass through with their Vision Pro, uh, I'm sorry, their, their the Quest Pro, which is a, a higher end headset, mm-hmm. um, does offer some phenomenal uh, features such as occlusion. That means like, you know, objects, if, it, if they're made in AR, they can go behind your couch and they actually get hidden from the couch. Mm-hmm. The, the, the software knows that. There's now like, I think, two splintering groups of developers that are going to take place. There, there might be like prosumer, enterprise, spatial computing, you know, I'm in the headset for work, Apple version. And then there's that other uh, definition of game developers, uh, similar to that Microsoft and Apple uh, uh, clear delineation of a gaming PC versus a, a productivity uh, computer, personal computer. What do you think about these two groups? Do you think that that is really a distinct two separate ways of developing for XR? Do you think they're all the same? I'd just love to get your experience on that, Nicole. Well, I think that the, um, that once you try, once you, I believe once, well, once you try VR at that resolution, like I did, you know, with the, with the Pico, uh, the Pico Max, uh, you can't, it's really hard to go back. Uh, you know, after, you know, after, after experiencing it. And so I think that it's uh, right now that delineation is more of a price point kind of, you know, conversation. It's like, okay, 3000 versus 300. I, and that, but then if you look at what happened with the iPhone, you know, it was, you know, the iPhone launched, you know, six times the price of the average iPhone over the average phone, cell phone and 2007, this headset's pretty, you know, pretty up there as well. But uh, after the uh, launch of the iPhone, you know, they, the prices did come down uh, you know, for, you know, and then it became more accessible. And so you had, you know, $400 units, you had other, you know, kind of other, other things. So I think that's going to be interesting. And Apple's play, though, really is, at least in the keynote, was it's really addressing the high-end, high-end consumer audience, you know, that I'm watching my muse, you know, I'm watching my movies, I'm, you know, doing my audio or whatever it is. There is definitely some work use cases shown, but a lot of it was also like, okay, work's done and now I'm going to sit on the couch. So we had at least five different couch scenes where I'm just watching, you know, where the people were just watching movies. And the price justification at the end of the keynote was that, you know, how much would you pay for, you know, a high resolution stereo, high resolution, you know, you know, 3D TV, you know, what would that, what would that stack look like? So that home entertainment center, you know, that is, you know, in, in the headset. So I think it was kind of like what happened with the original iPhone too, which was that the, at the beginning, uh, people would buy it you know, maybe for themselves, like the CEOs of large companies would often buy it for themselves and then, and then make, then like make their whole, their whole company <laughs> convert over to, and that was their, you know, the company iPhone. So, you know, having the excuse that, oh yeah, it's for business, but then I so much enjoy it personally as well is uh, probably a good strategy for, you know, Apple to repeat because it worked rather well on the iPhone. At least yeah, my a, that, that, I, I haven't heard that, but uh, that, that makes total sense. You know, um, the strategy of, of, you know, having it work for productivity, just like the Mac strategy, they, they got the early PCs into schools, right? You're right about that. Mm-hmm. They, they got adoption where they showed value uh, through education. And then, uh, you know, after, you know, maybe their kids at a young age learning, you know, learning to be on the computer for the first time, if they're going to then 
buy their own equipment. Of course, they're going to remember equipment that they actually grew up on. So that, that, that's interesting. And uh, I think uh, that IT approach was also a good analogy too. Um, in terms of expectations from the actual general development community in XR, like you've, you've been part of this XR community for, mm-hmm. for, from the start. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very unique community of developers, enthusiasts, hobbyists. Tell me kind of what you've been experiencing with that, the XR community and what their sentiment is around the Apple Vision Pro. Oh yeah, there's a lot, a really wide range, yeah, a wide range of opinions for sure. And I go back to, you know, pterodactyl nightmare. So the, the, the wave of VR, you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago, like a long time ago. Uh, and right now I think it's, you know, it's, it's divided. There's a lot of, um, there is a lot of, you know, kerfuffling about price point and about, you know, the lack of two, three, you know, true 3D uh, or, you know, demos of it anyway. There's definitely a lack of uh, a lot of, you know, people talking about, well, now they're in the current, you know, about in the current, supposedly, I haven't verified this, but supposedly in the in the um, developer documentation, there's a, if you walk more than X feet, you know, then the you know, resolution changes or something like that, or the, the real world pops in. Uh, but uh, I think overall, it just, again, it just feels like, you know, 2007 all over again. It's like where there, there were like very strong critics and very, pe- and then, you know, Apple has been presumed dead, declared dead, you know, I don't know how many times, right? They haven't had a couple of misses, you know, the Newton, I think is a good one. The, the Kleenex box Mac is another. They've had a couple duds, um, but I don't think it's really smart to bet against, to bet against Apple and we'll, um, you know, and we'll, and, and we will see. It all depends on what that headset, you know, really, really feels like. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, can it be interoperable, right? And can it support WebXR? A lot of developers are excited about the opportunity to support WebXR in the in the Apple Vision Pro, uh, which would be yeah, which is uh, it opens up so many opportunities for a lot of content and a lot of really interesting experiences that go cross device. And if we want to I build think- a shared you know virtual experience, interoperability is a huge thing. It's a huge thing for you know the, the next generation of the internet for sure. Yeah, and interoperability for those who don't know, it means being able to then take one asset and make it work on a different device, for example, or a different game. And the interoperability is going in and out of different experiences, even though they may be different companies or, or different brands. Um, and web XR allows that just like how the internet is free. There's no one that really, there's no central power that owns the internet. Um, and that's what you're referring to, correct? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's no, there's no, it's not a walled garden. The internet is pretty much, you know, the wild west, you know, anybody can, you know, as long as the domain is available, anybody could put up a website and, you know, and start telling their story. And I think that an ecosystem is always more robust if you have lots of voices. And so removing friction for, you know, the, you know, the removing friction of, you know, not, you know, of censoring, you know, different people or whatever, I think is, uh, uh, is, is a good thing to get a really robust and healthy ecosystem. It's just like, you know, if you go into, you know, a bookstore and there are only, you know, four categories of books, you know, there's cookbooks, there's histories, there's sci-fi and, um, and children's books and whatever. And that's it. That's not a very fun bookstore. You know, you also want, you know, psychology, you also want romance, you also want picture books, you want like lots of things. So interoperability can be, you know, can be a really big uh, key. Uh, and that's why we've done a lot of our games in, you know, including, you know, Tilt World, which is the iPhone game, 
in Unity because the uh, because it, it allows us to port you know to so many devices, and I think that's a, that's going to be a really a really big um, uh, a really big benefit. So we're really glad and delighted that Unity is going to be supported you know from from the start. And Tilt World is a game that you developed, which is awesome because it also does use the tilting gyroscope mechanics and, mm -hmm. you know, basically capitalizing on the, uh, on the features of specific hardware. How do you make it fun and make right. it more interactive? Can you tell me more about Tilt World? Yeah, for sure. Those who don't it, know? Uh, yeah. 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 For those who don't know, it basically came out of that dev camp game I talked about earlier where you just rotate the phone to play. So you match, you know, we had an arcade game where you matched you know, green one way, blue the other. And this for Tilt World, we just put it a little bit more like a little bit more like this. And uh, you control this character Flip. And she is an eco an eco hero where she's, you know, gobbling carbon out of the air and planting seeds. And so it's an eco story. It was the first game we were launched title on iPad. And we planted players have planted like 16,000 trees on the island of Madagascar with their points. So it was That's also so the cool. first game to to plant trees, and that that I think is another interesting story for developers too, because you know the way that I you know you have to just in in life you just have to keep showing up. If I could give you one bit of advice, uh, for me, you know, I showed up at iPhone Dev Camp and I teamed up with people. We made a game. That's how the first iPhone game was made. The for to launch on iPad, you know, I just we didn't have a device. So to be a launch title there, it's like, okay, I, got, I downloaded the specs and I, uh, and I duct taped two iPod touches to a plastic, the lid of a plastic con uh, to go container. That's cool. Balanced the whole game that way. Cause it had the right form factor. And then we were there in store day one. <laughs> I then went to the Apple store, you know, the actual Apple store and bought one and, uh, you know, and then hurriedly rushed back to the studio to try and make sure it did actually work. And yes, it did. It was, it was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. Um, but I think there's that, that, that feeling of like, you know, if you just, it's also at the launch of a new platform, it's possible to hit really big if you, you know, again, just show up and, you know, be there on, you know, prepare for, you know, launch day or get however you can and uh, to just keep, just keep trying, you know, fall down, you I, know, I think that's seven times advice. and up eight. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And for you, you've been also an expert in consulting for a lot of companies Mm. And, you know, that's a dream job for a lot of people who may be new to gaming or new to, uh, you know, any type of technology. Paint a picture for those who don't know who might be interested in doing exactly what you're doing. Mm. What it took to get there. You explained in terms of gave some advice for game development. But how about for, for you being a consultant, working on so many great projects? What advice do you have for other people who are aspiring to do just the exact same thing? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I well, first of all, I started. Yeah, well, I started. Back in the day, I wanted to be an interactive filmmaker. I had done this is back when like computers, you know, had keyboards, um, but they didn't have hard drives all the time. But we have so basically you couldn't play video. So it was like driving a video disc player to create interactive video. So I wanted I, my start was an interactive, you know, interactive fiction. And I went into games because I wanted stories that I could play. It was like I wanted these build these fantasies that I could invite my friends to go off and, and have. Uh, I wanted to get, you know, eventually wanted to make games. And so I thought the best way to do that would be to help other people make games. And so that's how I got into consulting. In my mind, I thought, okay, Sherlock Holmes, and I'll just be a consulting detective. I'll just be a consultant, uh, a UI, you know, a, basically a design consultant for games. 
and uh, brought, you know, and then just brought, uh, brought, brought in clients uh, that way. I hated cold calling. I hated cold calling. I hated cold calling. So <laughs> I spoke at conferences instead. And I, you know, developed each year. I had a new goal. I would learn something new, talk about it that year at conferences. And then that would also grow my consulting practice and me as a, as a designer, because I was taking on a new challenge. You know, it was a hard problem I took on every year, every single year. So that's how you got things like, you know, first iPhone game, you know, emotion, first a model for emotions for games. Lots of, lots of those first came out of the, okay, you know, I was, I was really early in on free to play. I was really early in on uh, a lot of different trends because uh, I could see what's coming and then jump in. You want to like be like Wayne Gretzky. You want to skate to where the puck is going to be. Right. Super important for consultants because no one, people will hire you. Basically companies hire you, and this is true for everyone, to solve a problem. Yeah, that's the that was the core principle was one of my first ideas uh, first concepts is that you solve a problem that's that's how you get hired or not and then for consultants you need to hire a problem of about something generally about something new that they're that they're doing so that's how i became this innovation kind of con design consultant it's like okay here's some new tech now how is this how is the mothership going to have to steer because of this new tech okay here's some more new tech how's the mothership going to have to steer so that you know that that kind of approach did, did me well from everything from working, you know, like I said, on The Sims, you know, Star Wars, you know, consulting on uh, EA's uh, origin launch, uh, all kinds of things was all about, like, how do I help the company innovate and take it to that next, that next level? Uh, the other thing that I don't do, but you might consider, is uh, specialize. So you can get, you know, you can just become the best person in X. You know, best person, you know, about, you know, user feedback or best person on, you know, optimizing app store monetization or something like that. And then that can be your practice. And then everyone can um, you know, come to you for that. Uh, and it's we don't know like what's going to happen because now we're at the we're just tipping our tiny toes into the new uh, the new world of, you know, generative AI or AI in general, this next thing. And so many things are going to be changing. And uh, so even like what a consultant do does, you know, might, might change as well. We didn't talk about generative AI, but bringing that up, it is also going to change the dynamic of gaming, right? Like uh, you've mm -hmm. probably seen some of the demos from InWorld where it allows you to create AI characters who are non-playable characters, NPC, and bring them to life. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Their user interface, you just kind of use sliders of this person is more aggressive. This person uh, is more funny. And you can choose the sliders to have that personality take place. So, and, and when you actually start talking to these NPCs, they actually have a life of their own. What do you think about generative AI? And how do you think that's going to influence games, especially around XR? Because it's definitely going to increase more immersion. Give me your thoughts on that, Nicole. Oh, absolutely. It's a new tool. And, and, you know, games have usually been the first, you know, we've been the first, you know, group to jump into new technology. We're the ones usually, you know, we're the ones usually jump in first, essentially. Uh, we've been testing it for Follow White Rabbit, you know, pretty much we've been testing AI at like every layer of production and design, just like what would, what does AI change here? What, what advantages does it have? What disadvantages? What are the you know ethical concerns? So we've been doing that, you know, for, uh, you know, for over, over a year, over a year now, at least. Uh, we found the most success now with White Rabbit about, you know, generating, uh, generating art, you know, seems to be art and depth and, you know, some really interesting effects can happen really well with AI. And the tools right now in the past months, 
like Unity and Photoshop and stuff like that have started to, you know, incorporate, you know, the tools into their chain as opposed to, you know, just using a raw tool off of uh, in, you know, the open in the open source AI uh, community. Uh, the thing with AI though is that, especially with the uh, text-based AIs uh, where it's generating text, is that it. Uh, we find that that kind of AI, and to a certain extent the visual as well, but definitely with text, is it's really more of a, uh, it's more of a web search with conversational formatting. So it's pretty much scraping the tropes that are out there and organizing them into a nice neat pile. <laughs> so if you're doing a game that's supposed to entertain people, you know, you and you want it to be formulaic, well, you know, maybe you, you, that, that might be good. But what we do in that case is, and I gave a talk at AWE about this, so there's a much longer version of this uh, idea, is that the, we, if you look at, you know, we take that scrape and say, okay, well, this is the first gen, and then we're going to build on top of that and do new stuff, so we're, you know, going to be innovative. That's, you know, that seems to be, that seems to work for some AI. I think that works well. There's some fascinating work coming out of Fable and some other studios that are, um, that are using it. Uh, to write stories or create, as you said, like character AI. The challenge is if you think about it, like if you were doing a brand like Star Wars or if you were doing your own thing, you have a couple of challenges with these AI generated characters um, because, you know, are they uh, in canon? You know, so if they start just talking about lunch for some reason, you know, or, you know, they start talking about, you know, the Honda Civic that they just bought and they're, you know, and Mos Eisley is like, no, that doesn't work, right? So what's right. in canon, what's not in canon, what's in character or not in character for that particular thing. And then how do you guarantee that that character is going to arc or, you know, story from a story perspective, or how do you guarantee that the player is going to arc or perceive that, you know, as a forward motion, as opposed to just word salad coming out of the, you know, out of the, out mm. of the character. And we see that a lot with new technologies. The first 15 minutes is amazing, creates novelty, a lot of interest. And then after that, though, unless there are other mechanics that hook you in, uh, which is going from the easy fund to hard fund in our model, uh, then people will just you know kind of leave that. There's a window of novelty that closes as in human experience, and you need to have some kind of architecture, some sort of structure of new engagement tools and mechanics to to move them out. So I think we're getting you know we're getting metahumans, we're getting very believable uh, you know models. Now, believable performances, believable storytelling, that's kind of the next kind of the next level. But, you know, I think it's a really interesting goal. I, I gave a talk in GDC in uh, 2018, I believe, 2018, 2019, on what it would take, you know, how would AI be used in games and having an AI GM, you know, dungeon master, game master is definitely a holy grail for games. We're not there yet. And, uh, you know, and but if we could get that the freedom that you have in like a good role-playing D or other you know other um role-playing game tabletop with friends is amazing and you know if we get that gm that ai gm that's really tuned to us that knows whether it's more fun to hide the body you know under the couch or in the refrigerator for our group that <laughs> night um you know or they just you know they try they want they want the fire they want to jump into the fireplace because they think that goes to the underworld okay you know you know, if, if an AI can do that, then that's going to be just imagine the kind of games we play. It's very much like uh, the old Ray, Ray Bradbury story called The Velt, which is uh, about an AI nursery, essentially a VR cave. And you can walk into it and say, African savanna uh, with lions. 
And then, of course, being Redbury's story, it's a cautionary tale, and you can imagine what happens. But uh, we're almost to that point of what uh, Star Trek you know, later called like the holodeck. And uh, that's, we're going to need a lot of AI to drive those kinds of experiences. Um, but, that, that, but that could be really, really fun, as yeah, any you know, so cool. Star Trek fan yeah. might see. I think uh, bring up the holodeck and also D and D. You know, you're saying yeah. you're saying the magic words for me. I think that's super cool. Speaking of the holodeck, you know, everybody had wanted the holodeck. Uh, you know, early on since we 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 watched Star Star Trek, and you know, being in that immersed in that world, how far are we where that becomes reality? Considering there's like things like neural implant and BCI, like how far away from 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 the holodeck are we? Well, with uh, the holodeck, I don't know if we need BCI for it. Uh, the you know the big thing will be haptics. You know, like what you know, can we create physical furniture, for example, you know, on demand? And I have an idea from you know 2016, 2015, 2014, um, where you know how you could build something like that. It would be really expensive, but you could uh, you know actually create a dynamic physical space. Uh, to create the to create the pro the sets and the props that you would need to dynamically you know jump things in um, with BCI it's going to be quite I believe it's going to be quite a bit longer uh, journey than many people realize uh, because the uh, the right now a lot of the electrical external non invasive uh, non invasive electrodes can only measure about the first quarter inch of your activity in your brain. And there are only certain functions that are available at that depth. And there's a lot of variation between from brain to brain, from even from day to day. The one exception, of course, is the visual cortex, which is just about here in the back. And it has a really interesting one-to-one -one mapping almost uh, with the back of one's retina. So if I show a big, big, strong letter A in front of you, like in black and white, you'll see an inverted A, you know, in the back. In terms of area of activation, you can measure on the cortex. That's quite a bit, you know, so I have to have a big letter A. <laughs> And you know, that's quite that's quite different than um, than other than other things uh, than than trying to, you know being able to like jack in like in the Matrix and then I know kung fu, right? So <laughs> I you know you know I, I I don't know I mean it is it is something of a dream, but if you are in a VR cave, you could learn things quite quickly, and that I think uh, that that I think could work could work really well with voice interaction and body interaction. Uh, those kinds of experiences are already happening. Nicole, I, I could talk to you forever, but I, I know you're limited time. Anything else, final departing words or thoughts you want to give the audience? Well, I think that the thing to think about is that, you know, regardless of what it is, the most important thing about technology is it's really, it's a tool for humans to use. We can get caught up in a lot of the bits and the bytes and the, you know, the different specifications, but the most important technology of any system, whether it's the metaverse or VR, AR, or AI, even generative AI, it's people. And I think my most important thing is we want to be sure that everything we create is people-centered, improving the quality of life and, you know, unlocking human potential through play. I couldn't agree more. That was that was perfect. Nicole, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Oh, thank you, David. I had a wonderful time. And uh, it was lovely, lovely spending the afternoon with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I'm just going to stop it right here. Um,